Um, well, welcome another to another edition of the Music City Drive-In, brought to you by the Drive-In Podcast Network. Uh, my name is Jacob Thornberry, and I am pleased and honored to be with Richard Lett and Roy Ty. Is that how you say it? That's right. Hi, okay. Thank you for having me. All right. Um, yeah, I, I actually, I was scouring the internet before we started to try to find out how to say it. And there's another, there's a YouTube video with another guy named Kevin Ty or something and same spelling. So I just uh -huh. kind of did that and uh, rolled with it and hoped that that was right. Um, yeah, Kevin Ty is a, is an, was an actor, a television actor. I have no relation to him, but whenever I go to the golf course over here in LA, the guys who check me in, they ask me every time, like, hey, do you know Kevin Ty? <laughs> No, I, we're not related. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was part one of um, hoping I don't fuck anything up. But um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, Roy and Richard uh, both. Well, Roy did the documentary about Richard. Never be done. Uh, my review is up on musiccitydrivein.com now. You can go check it out. It's still one of my favorites of the entire year. Um, I think it have I have it Thanks. third, and you know I've seen big budget movies i've seen whatever um i've tried to watch as much as i can and i mean this is something that has still held up just as much now as it has the entire year for me watching um i guess my first question is for roy you know what really got you into filmmaking and what got you into movies and um and you know the art of film um it was always uh, I actually didn't always know I wanted to do it, but uh, storytelling and um, storytelling and and performing, I, I guess, is something that I was always drawn to. I, I love a good story. That's that's my whole thing. Is you know, especially in in filmmaking, story is king. You know, there's all new things that come out every day of different cameras and you know the real 3D engine and virtual environments or you know, 360 cameras or really high-end cameras or should you shoot on film, like all these things. But at the end of the day, story is still king. You know, you can still produce something with a pad and a pen and, and you know, come up with something great. So that was always something that I was drawn to is storytelling. It started with me as, as writing, actually. Um, when I was a kid, I used to, um, I, 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 and I liked the, the whole aspect of filmmaking in the engineering of it I'm, uh, is what really inspires me in creating um, not just writing the story and then shooting it, but the whole process in it. Do I have to build a set? Do I have to build this thing? Do I have to like figure out something in my studio to make this new feature work? Whatever it may be, it, it, it excites me. But when I was a kid, I, I uh, was all drawn to it because I got these uh, puppets and I thought, okay, uh, I want to I wanna put on puppet shows. And then it led to, well, I need to build a puppet stage. So then I built a puppet stage in my backyard. And then it was like, okay, now I need an audience. And then it was like, okay, now I need to charge ticket sales. So I started putting together the whole production myself and, and doing it for the neighborhood. And that's how my whole career has been. You know, I've, I've built up my company from the simple thing of um, first wanting to tell stories that I thought were funny, whether they're fiction or real and then just finding that I have to do every aspect of it to get it off the ground because no one's coming to do it for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no sign on the, on the highway saying actors are needed. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you're not gonna, you're not gonna see that, that ever probably. Right. <laughs> so yeah. 
for me, it was uh, that that was really the backstory. And then when I was in high school, I I was I was always writing. Uh, I, I I wrote a lot of poetry. Never shared it. Just kept it with myself. I was in drama class, liked acting, um, and that kind of stuff. And I and the performance aspect. And then when I was finishing up high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I'm from a very small town, and I think that's where Richard and I kind of uh, relate. I relate to Richard is that he's also from a small town, and and that small town mentality is very much, you know, go get that have that manly uh persona and you drink beer you gotta be hardcore you uh, carpenter you know that type of mentality and definitely coming from fort francis a, a lot of my friends you know went off and became tradesmen and stuff like that and that's awesome but for me i didn't i didn't really relate to any of that kind of stuff i i enjoyed drama class and writing and i talked to a guidance counselor and he said that you know there's a thing called film school and i thought oh really and he said yeah yeah you can go away to college to to take film and I was like wow that sounds amazing and he's like yeah I just go there and do that so I applied to a bunch of film schools in Toronto uh, my grades weren't good enough so I did not get in <laughs> but luckily Vancouver took me <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I got into a film school in uh, Capilano College in uh, in Vancouver North Vancouver and I, I made a mini documentary actually uh, to submit as to get into the school they wanted you to do a piece on tell us your personality and and who you are and why should we admit you to this film school this film program so I actually made a documentary on what people thought of me if I was to die pretty morbid but I so I made this mockumentary where I wanted to get real interviews of what people really truly thought of me so I walked around with my camera and I interviewed people that I knew and didn't know and ask them questions about what they think of Roy Tai. And um, a lot of people gave honest answers and I sent that off to the school and, and they let me in. And then I went in for the interview and they liked me. So I got into the film school and I did that and realized in film school that I, that was more trying to train me to become like a grip or an electric. And I really wanted to have control over my own production. So I, I stopped going to film school and um, started just working regular day jobs. And then I ended up writing a, um, a short film and went off and produced it and did it all on my own and then liked the idea and wanted to make that into a web series and I started doing that and throughout that process I also dabbled in stand-up and that's how I first originally heard about Richard was when I started doing stand-up when I was 18 but it wasn't really my thing to become a stand-up comedian I found that I could express myself more creatively through through the lens so I stuck with that route but yeah I heard of Richard for the first time when I was 18 years old and the craziest part is is the first time I ever went on stage Richard was there and I don't even know if he remembers it but I went to have amateur nights at Yuck Yuck and uh, that actual tape of me and the first time I meet Richard I think is actually online that you can see my set's not that great but uh, I uh, I went into the set set at Yuck Yucks and Richard obviously at that time he's already a veteran and established comedian in in Vancouver and definitely in Canada and so he was the headliner that night and and like comedians do they hang out in the green room and this is my first time going and you you know you you see like these other comedians that are headliners and for me it's like oh how did they get there and I aspire to want to be like them right I'm a young guy so when I went on stage that amateur night they give you five minutes and I did it and I got a pretty good reaction people were laughing 
And then I came backstage, like Richard was genuinely laughing and like kind of sitting there just like laughing. And he looked at me, he said, great set kid. And I was like, oh man, sweet. Like, you know what I mean? Like I yeah. like, like Richard, who's going to headline, like actually said like, hey, like was genuinely thought it was like kind of funny, you know, like and good set. And then that, and then that was it. I never talked to him again for probably 10 years. Right. So I just knew of him. I, um, I dabbled a little bit in stand up, like I said, and then. Uh, our producer slash mutual friend between the two of us, uh, Danny Mendlo, um, he introduced us uh, about 10 years after that. And then okay. the documentary started. Okay. And um, kind of a follow-up question for Richard, you know, I asked Roy what got him into filmmaking. What kind of got you into stand-up comedy? Is that something you grew up and always wanted to do? Or is that something you kind of just fell into at s- some point? Well, you know, I first thought of stand-up comedy from reading a book called Ladies and Gentlemen, Lenny Bruce. It's a very thick book, um, a biography, which may or may not be true, but um, Goldman, I think, was the writer of that. He was outed for, you know, making stuff up. But anyway, it was a great book, uh, whether it was true or not. But I was compelled by Lenny Bruce and and what um, he stood for. I was, you know... Uh, kind of a smart kid in school and political, and I w- and I liked the idea of sort of raging against the machine and you know being a sort of a protesting against injustice and so um, that's sort of what Lenny um, was about certainly later in his career and what he ended up being sort of punished for was um, going against. Um, the status quo. So I like that idea. Um, you know, I was always funny. So there's always two parts. One is this inspiration to do this as a job. The other is a, a natural affinity for it. So I was always, you know, being funny in school and at parties and stuff. It was real uh, kind of my, um, my social uh, lubricant was to be funny. And so um, that was happening and then um you know my friends and i would sit around and listen to cheech and chong albums and monty python albums and and it was you know back in the day where you'd you know the album would show up a lp would show up at the record store and somebody would buy it and then we'd all go over to somebody's place we'd just sit around in a circle and just sit there and listen to this thing and laugh you know it was like nowadays where you just sort of YouTube, you know, down the rabbit hole, um, you know, it was a real, almost a, a ceremony or ritual that us, the new comedy albums coming in. And so we were into that, but I still didn't really see that as being a job that I would do. Um, I actually was a school teacher and had a degree in education. Um, and, uh, and then I, I graduated and uh, there were no teaching jobs. And I was wanting to act, done a lot of acting through school, and I was trying to get an audition and, and stuff like that. And a friend of mine was doing stand-up, and I, I found myself kind of nervous at these auditions. So I thought, well, I'll do the scariest thing there is, and I'll do stand-up. Because, you know, as, as a sort of a, a way to sort of, you know, um, you know thicken up my skin. And um, I just turned out to be good at it. it, it you know, I, I got... Uh, you know, 
gigs very quickly. Within a few months, I was uh, getting money for it. And it, within four years, I was headlining. Now, I was starting late. I started when I was 26. Nowadays, people start when they're 16. And so they're not going to be moved up to headline until they, you know, mature as a, as a, as a guy. But, um, but I was already a young man. And so I, I became, um, you know, professional headline stand-up comedian, you know, in a remarkably quick fashion. However, I was in Alberta and British Columbia, which are very, um, in Saskatchewan, very sort of underpopulated places in Canada. So, um, there was no, uh, you know, brass ring for us there. We just sort of ended up going and touring, hitting all these bars and stuff. It didn't, you know, occur to us that you could become, you know, in the Just for Last Fest or all these other things that are afforded uh, young comedians now. We just went out there and, you know, cranked out an hour of comedy but, and, uh, and drank our faces off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and... You know, back to Roy, uh, I know the beginning of the documentary is a scene in which, you know, Richard is outside saying jokes and, you know, not a lot of people like it. Um, you know, I just want to know, like, what was what was that moment where you knew, like, this is what I wanted to make a documentary about? Um, uh, I think the moment, you know. I didn't really have that aha moment. You know, I, I, it wasn't like that for me. Uh, I, I didn't sit there and be like, aha, oh yeah, this is, this is what I've been striving to do with my life. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it wasn't, it wasn't like that. Um, it, it, uh, it, it, I didn't even know I had anything until I saw the assembly edit and I watched it with my mentor. Um, you know, so that's 10 there. Uh, it's a, so it took us seven years, six years, seven years of filming and then about two years of edit. So I'm about eight years at this time and I still don't know if this is something that I'm even going to complete. You know? Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So when I, when I uh, looked at the assembly edit with, with Bud Smith, who's my, who's my mentor, who's a, you know, an, an Oscar nominated editor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a massive career. And um, when we sat down and watched the first assembly edit that my editor, Adam, put together um we looked at each other and we said yeah i think you got some here and um and we we started dissecting it and started saying like we won't need this we won't need that we need to just clean this up a lot of lot of conversation around what what the problems are with crafting this story and how to go about best and craft that story so an audience can digest it that's our job now when we're sitting in post-production right it's not as a director, you, you can get torn into, oh, I, I want to tell my movie, but then also your movie might not be the best way to tell the story so audiences can understand it. And I am, ta and I am tackling, tackling a challenging thing here because I'm not trying to make a movie about AA and, and alcoholism in 12 steps, and I'm not trying to make a, rich, a Richard Lett movie. I'm, ta I'm telling a story about, I'm telling a moment in time of this story that happens to be about this man's life. So it was it was a challenge it was a challenging area to how do I craft that story so an audience can digest that and understand the story that I'm trying to tell. So when I finished that first assembly edit, there was that moment of like, whew, 
Like, okay, yeah. like there, uh, you know what I mean? I, I, I think I have something here that I, I believe can help people. And I believe that it's something that um, Richard can hopefully understand and, and that, like I said, can possibly leave a mark on society and create a conversation. And, uh, and then it was a lot of work to get it to a place of what you see it is today. Um, in regard to the filming process, that a lot of that early footage, almost all of it, was was me just hanging out with Richard right it was you know I wasn't some documentarian I'd never done that before in my life and I, I definitely wasn't some you know sobriety guru or spiritual leader you know I was a guy who who enjoyed being around Richard and I thought he was interesting enough to just film and that's what just kept it going and the more it, the more and more as you see in the documentary in real time things get amped up the more I'm going, okay, I want to be there. I want to be a part of, I want to, I want to, I want to witness this. I want to film this. I don't know if, if always my intentions were good in that, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to help Richard. A lot of it was coming from intentions of selfishness of like, Hey, this is good cinema to capture. This is good. This is good footage to capture. Um, but however, um, I, I, I believe that it was it was working out the way it was supposed to, and I believe that there was a higher presence at bay that was guiding this ship, that was allowing Richard and I to play in God's playground, but he was there to be like, "Hey, I got this," you know, and yeah, and and I may sound a bit out there, but that is for me the experience of what was going on, and and I and I just I did like any documentarian would do, you just follow the footage and, and don't get in the way of it. And it just happened to work out the way it worked out. Yeah. And that's, um, that's one thing that I really gravitated to this movie um, more than other documentaries is you really gave it kind of a narrative structure. You didn't, you know, you watch most documentaries and it's constant interviews. It's constant, you know, it seems like the uh, director is trying to pull something out of the people he's talking to. What I liked about this movie is you never did that. You kind of just, placed a camera up and kind of let the world play out um, and let Richard play out. And, you know, there were some interviews like how documentaries go, but my favorite thing is that you kind of just let this world play out in front of us and let us, you know, be like another person in the room. You know, we weren't mm -hmm. watching a documentary or we were watching a movie about a person. Um, and that's one of the things that I really, really liked about this movie is it didn't seem like you were trying to force any certain, um, any certain thing out of this movie. Um, but with saying that, was there any goal in particular that you really wanted to get from this movie that you wanted people to take away with it? Um, you know, was there anything you wanted from it, from the filmmaking perspective, anything like that? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, you know, it, uh, really the goal and what I've, still want to get out of this and I hope as it does is that it provides hope for other people that are struggling with addiction or people that are affected by people who are in addiction um, that's and to create a conversation around addiction because my take on displaying what what goes on in the documentary that is you know me putting on the table Richard's uh, alcohol uh, addiction and substance abuse right we're, we're putting addiction on the table as a conversation starter piece and Richard essentially is this guinea pig right he's in there like just 
you know, going through it yeah. and now he's alive and well and he's doing amazing, right? So there's proof in the pudding here that this this works if you want if you want it to work for you, right? Um, and and then there is hope for people that are struggling. So that's always been my goal is to create a conversation around it. And and I and and I'm 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 I believe that I've been able to put a piece of work out there to do that. Um, and and with um, with saying that I I do I do think that um, I do think when I see a lot of people trying to trying to tackle the subjects of, of addiction whether it's in a conversation or in a book or whatever is that what I wanted to do was to put the audience in the front seat right in that right in the scene with with Richard so they could feel what it's like because I wanted to speak to people who maybe have no idea what it's like dealing with an addict. And, and, and I, and I wanted to put the audience there to go, this is what it's like. You know, the prime, the prime scene for me is that I refused to cut down was when Richard's trying to move out and he mm -hmm. keeps saying, Oh, oh yeah, I'm going to be out. I'm going to be out. I'm going to be out. And it, and if you ever have dealt with someone who's struggling with addiction, that is their mindset. They're not, they're not sitting there being like, Oh yeah, like I'm going to get a job tomorrow. They're like, no, that's not where Richard was at. And it's easy to judge him. But I wanted people to say, hey, open your mind. It's easy to judge this man right now at the moment he's in his life. But keep an open mind to what this is actually like dealing with someone in addiction. And people who have been through it themselves or have had family members, they always come up to me and just say, like, you nailed it. Like, you, that is really what it's like. That's really the experience of what it's like. And so, again, it's opening up that conversation. Because there's a, there is people that watch the documentary and they think, like, Richard in the first 40 minutes is like, why doesn't he just get his job? Why doesn't he just get a job? Why doesn't he just get it together? And it's like, it's not like that. Like this man is like, you know, he's, he's pushed the limits there, right? Like he's, this is something that he, he uses to, for many reasons, right? And I think Richard can more speak to that than, than me, but that's what he's using, right? And that's what addicts are like. And it's not about just pushing them to the side and judging them and making fun of them. No, it's about understanding it. So maybe you can extend a hand to help. And if you have nothing to offer to help, then maybe you know someone else who does, or you yourself can take a look at yourself and why you don't know how to help. You know, it's not like these, not like Richard's not a demon, right? Maybe he has demons, but he's not a, an evil insidious person, but he definitely had his demons in his moment in his life where he needed to overcome some things. Right. And that's, and that's, that's, that's how it is with anyone who's struggling with addiction. They're not, they're not purposely, you know, sitting there trying to go, Hey, yeah, I'm going to go beat my wife right now. They know it's a nasty thing, but it's alcohol induced. It's addiction induced. And there's no excuse for that behavior. However, the a person is obviously struggling with something and mm -hmm. needs help. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, you touched on the moving out part. Um, and I think that's one thing where you said, you know, he got kicked out of his place and it wasn't that, Oh, I'm going to go find a job. You know, if you watch the movie, you see that, you know, he went on the run, like he disappeared or Richard disappeared. And, you know, that's one part for me that really like broke me. It's that, you know, that's the part where I was scared that he wasn't going to take control of his second chance. And luckily, you know, we found out throughout the end of it that he did, you know, grab a hold of his second chance and, you know, I'll get back to that later, but um, Richard, you know, I assume you've seen the movie, um, you know, what is one thing, Sir, you a couple times? Yeah. Um, 
what's one thing, you know, being in that fourth wall, kind of on the outside looking in, being an audience member in your own life, what's one thing that you've, you've really picked up on in the movie, um, going back and watching it? Well, personally, um, I didn't know how close I was to dying. Um, you know, there's some, some footage um, where I'm very thin and I'm just like, mm -hmm. um, I'm, it doesn't look like I'm gonna make it. And, you know, I, I know I did, cause I'm him, but even so I'm watching this going, this guy is <laughs> troubled um, and he doesn't know it. And, you know, that's a great gift, um, you know, within recovery to know that that actually was happening. You know, addiction and alcoholism is one of the few diseases that tries to convince you that you don't have it. And so um, if there's any question in my mind that, um, that I have it, um, that, that, that footage uh, and the struggle to get out of there, I don't remember it very clearly, but I do remember, you know, just wandering around trying to figure out how, how to get the, the hell out of there. I think it's interesting too, you've just brought it up, the part where I go missing. You know, um, in the 12 steps, we talk a lot about how we st tell our story, which is that uh, we talk about what we were like, what happened and what we're like now. And uh, inevitably the what happened part, which is what addicts like to skip over when they tell their story, um, <laughs> because it's not really tellable. It is, um, you know, to put not too fine a point on it, that is when the, the, the God of our understanding, our higher power, seems to intervene. And I think it's remarkable within the filmmaking how that part, um, we don't see it. We don't see what happened, you know, there. And, and, and I think that, um, like Roy talks about this sort of the... Uh, sort of uh, spiritual intervention of in the film that that deliberately is not available because I think in good filmmaking, there's always a point where the audience has to go there themselves and experience their own sort of what happened, their own epiphany, whether it be the girl that breaks your heart or the, you know, the, the fear that you're gonna lose your life, or in this case, what that dark place is, you know, if you look at Joseph Campbell and the belly of the beast, right, in, in the, you know, the hero's journey, well, the belly of the beast um, isn't filmed in this documentary. It's just Roy is sitting there getting a phone call from me going, I didn't die, okay? Mm -hmm. Roy, Roy, there comes a time. Yeah. You gotta stop asking questions and just listen. He's going, okay, because, you know, he, he, you know I, I admonish him to go, just shut up for a second, all right? I'm going to make it. It was close. I didn't die, though. And, you know, explain what happened. You know, Jacob, it was so dark during that time period. You know, the darkness that, that I invited in, into my world. And my memory of that period of time was so dark that you wouldn't have been able to even 
film it with the camera of the day. You probably could pick it up now with one of those fancy Sonys, but it was so dark. Yeah. And, and, and so to emerge from that, because th there is a brilliant piece of, of film making or film capturing and, um, and it's, and Roy wasn't there that day. <laughs> it was <laughs> in the carport with Graham, who's the sort of un, uh, sort of the invisible, you know, power in this film, such a kind and, and not mercenary guy. If anything, Graham's the one that was going like, you know, but in that scene, I'm sure you remember it, where I just turn on him and I go, I'm not even close to kidding right now. And, uh, and then he films me and I walk down, I drop an N-bomb and then I stomp on the cord that opens up the garage door and the light, a, a wall of white, and I walk into that white. Mm -hmm. And that is a, it still gives me goosebumps, that powerful moment where we go, is this guy going off into the white light to die or is it into rebirth? Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's what happens is that's, that's rebirth. And that's just, you know, textbook good filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And, but how do you have that shot? How do you, you know, like, how do you go through your stuff and go, wait a minute, I think I do have something, you know, you've got to do your work. And that's what these guys did. And, and so, you know, and sometimes, you know, Roy can be there, but there's Graham. A lot of that second camera stuff, right? With me wandering around looking pensively, trying to get onto a sky train. Roy wasn't there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was yeah. Graham, right? And his nature, his quality, his kindness, his gentleness brought that out of me. So when I was hanging with Roy and he was filming me, I was being funny and irreverent and, and self-destructive. When Graham was shooting me, it was contemplative and soulful and searching. And, and so, you know, again, that, that, how, do you, how do you put a team like that together? You don't, it just happens. Yeah, you know, and you know, that's one thing you touched on and that's what is so, I think so powerful about this documentary is you know, there are moments, there, there's no way you guys scripted you walking into that light, you know? Like, that's just, it's just one of those stories to where anything that happens, it's just kind of cinematic in itself. And, you know, one thing I think that you said, um, that, well, one thing you just said was how, you know, you watch the movie and you sit there and you think, is he going to make it? And I think that's a test to Roy and just how well done this movie is that, you know, even the person that this is about still thinks like, you know, like, is, is this going to happen? Um, you know, and, uh, you know, the reception for this movie has come out and it's been very strong. You know, I, I was doing my research earlier. Um, it's got 9.6 out of 10 on IMDb out of almost 40 people, uh, 98% audience score out of 60 people. Um, all four Rotten Tomato um, approved critics rated it fresh. You know, I gave it four and a half stars out of five myself. Has the reception from this movie, um, is that something you were really seeking out for to make, you know, a critically re received movie? Or were you guys just trying to make a movie that 
really showed what this was, whether the reception was there or it wasn't? Well, I think that uh, definitely, I, I don't, I, I know, uh, I always correct people on this. So I, I, I don't, I'm not being uh, rude or obtuse. I'm, I'm, there was no we and us making a movie. There was Richard living his life. Yeah, yeah. He filming it. You know yeah. what I mean? So um, with Richard is that I don't, I, Richard can answer what he thought was going to happen. I definitely know with me, I, again, um, my my whole thing was wanting to make something that's impactful. Um, it's a, you know, I was not expecting, and I, and I really didn't care if people were going to review this and, what I, I don't even read the reviews. Um, mm. You know, I listen to the odd podcast every once in a while, but maybe Richard does or we do together. Just, you know, it feels good just to reminisce on that stuff and hear Richard sometimes, you know, and us talk, but I don't read the reviews. I don't, I'm not too worried about it. I never was concerned about what, how people will, will take this movie. Um, my mentor is uh, Bud and, and, and his son, Scott, they both just said to me early on, they just said, you know, Roy, um, just make something and let them decide if they like it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that's always been the thing with making this movie. I just, I, I, I tried to tell the truth the best I could with the footage I had. And they, and you know, there's some people who maybe didn't like Richard or didn't like the movie or they liked Richard, but then, you know, whatever, I don't care. Like, it's just like, come, I just let the audience come up with their own conclusion. And, you know, it's, yeah. Does it feel good? And is it, and am I grateful? And it, is it, bring hope to my life that I made something that has these reviews and it has these stars and that you even yourself want to interview me right now. And Richard, and you you gave it four and a five, four and a half out of five yourself. And thank you for that. Um, and it's amazing. It, it really is. Uh, it does warm my heart to hear that people got what I, what I, what I was wanting to put together and, you know, and, and the fact that Richard's alive and doing well, that, that warms my heart even more. And I'm grateful for that. And I definitely didn't have any expectations of how people were going to take it. I, I wanted to finish it and get this story out there and do it justice. That, that was my mentality. If film festivals accepted it, great. If they didn't, great. But yeah, of course it stings when they say no. And it's, you know, but at the same time, it's, uh, you know, it's part of the business, you know, is you got to have thick skin. And I just wanted to get my story out there. I wanted to get this story out there. And, and, and my biggest concern was how Richard would receive it too. Right. You know, and, and I, and I didn't want that to affect the way I made the movie. So I had to fight that off a lot. But when we went to the Whistler film festival and it was Richard's first time seeing it, I was nervous. You know, I'm like, I don't know. What if Richard like just gets up and walks out and says, fuck you, Roy, you know what I mean? And, or he's just, you know, cause I, I consider Richard a close friend and I've grown a bond with him. We're forever bonded through this experience on film forever be here long before we're like well we're dead it'll still be out there right mm-hmm. so it was a concern and 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 when he watched it for the first time and we talked after it was, it was a good conversation and i think he understood what i what i created and and then i'll let richard take it from here because like i said there was no we enough making the movie there was richard living his life and me documenting it and now putting it out there for the world to see it okay yeah, it's interesting, Jacob, because the deal always was um, Roy will be the filmmaker and I'll be Richard Lett. And um, he wasn't interested in... Yeah, go ahead. Brianna's here. No, no. Hey, Brianna. Hey. <laughs> um, she's very busy. She's studying to become a doctor. 
later. Um, but uh, um, so I never, Jacob, I never saw a frame of this thing. You know, sometimes you might be shooting something and the guy, the camera guy will turn around and show you what, what the frame was or what they're going for or the light or anything like that. Nothing. Not a frame of it from for seven years, and um, and it's uh, um, you know that. So when I saw it in Whistler, you know I I'm going like, why am I still wearing that toque? And, you, know, <laughs> you know I might have changed hats if I'd known. Um, but you know it was just in order for it to be any good. The reality is, is that Roy and I have a lot in common in that we don't give a fuck about becoming rich and famous. At a certain mm -hmm. point, you realize that you've failed in that department. <laughs> that it's, it's not happening. And so, um, and, there's, and it's very freeing to realize that, you know, I'm not going to, you know, be a Bill Burr. And so... Um, and that's okay because meanwhile you're still doing the work and the work is what what it's about in this case i continue to express myself um through stand-up through slam poetry through music and all that other stuff um and and roy continued to make um films that he had little skits that he did on you know and then he shot some commercials and and we both just sort of got better at what we were doing I got better at surviving, uh, you know, a, the disease of addiction. And Roy got better at, at making films. And you can see it in the film. It's interesting how it, of course, runs chronologically for the most part. So you can see the quality of the cameras and the quality of the shooting gets better and better as the, the film uh, advances. And there's a certain, you know, clarity and... and you know, really uh, potency to the coloring and, and, and all that as, it, as we go farther and farther. So, but I mean, if I had, if it had been my energy and my effort and my desire, wouldn't happen, mm -hmm. wouldn't happen. I just didn't have the skills nor the desire to run around and chronicle all this stuff. I mean, imagine, you know, all the little photos of me and my mom and then all the, the, the footage the, uh, of Brianna and I when she was little and all that stuff, you got to find that shit. You got to cut it in there and you got to do all that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just endless hours of that work, right? Mm -hmm. And I wasn't interested in doing that. So, you know, <laughs> Roy was the one that had to do that. He'd periodically call me up and go, do you have photos of this or that? I go, yeah, talk to my sister. And that would be it, right? And then there they were in the film going, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember one point when I, I had a box of videotapes, VHS tapes, and I'm Roy standing there. You know, this is when I was trying to move out of my apartment. He goes, what are you doing with these? And I said, uh, yeah. I don't know. He goes, can I have them? I said, sure. Well, those ended up in the documentary. Yeah. He, went, he went through all, all those archive VHS tapes were sitting there in that, you know, bedlam that was my apartment. Me going, I don't know, sure, take it, right? You know, I still so, have them. You still, still have, have that. I still have that box. Yes. So, 
So I, I don't know if this is anywhere near the answer to the question you were asking, Jacob. It's a, it's a better answer than I could have expected. <laughs> yes. We had a deal. And the deal was that we would just um, trust whatever the process was. There was a point, Jacob, where Roy was losing his mind. Mm-hmm. He was overworking himself. He was trying to do everything. He was trying to edit this film. And, and he was living in Los Angeles. I remember him telling that his sister almost had to do an intervention on Roy to get him to eat, right? Because he was like over the top trying to do this because there was something driving him that he, that he had something special, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that you gave it four and a half stars means that he was right, that yes. it was special. Definitely. Right. But... It's tough when you've got something special and nobody else knows it, right? Mm-hmm. And so he, he, he put himself into an obsession and, and, um, and, and that, that worried me. I think at some point, Roy thought that he might be able to redeem me or save my career or something like that. We'll do this documentary and everybody will see it and then you'll get to be in, you know, get your HBO special or whatever, right? And... And we do that in a sort of a naive way. Hey, maybe this documentary will really launch me, right? It's not happening, dude. It's not. I am not launchable. Right? There's no, no one's going to discover me. I'm discovered. They can't even cancel me. I mean, I mean, what do you have to say and do on film to get canceled around here? Because, you know, Someone said, well, you know what? I think you might be racist. They're going, yeah, yeah, that's like eight minutes of that film. <laughs> or, you know, so there's no cancel culture can do anything to me now because it was just full disclosure. Mm-hmm. I was a fucking mess. And, you know, there's something to that too because the reality is, is that these people that are being canceled, whether they're big or small or all that kind of stuff, I show that it's coming from a terrible, it's a place of pain, right? I was self-destructing. And, and those things that I said and the, and the way that I behaved was not born out of some insidious evil, like Roy said, but just someone who was um, in an awful lot of pain and, mm. and didn't know where to go with it, right? So there's a lesson there. Yeah. Yeah, you can't um, fix a broken brain with a broken brain, as Richard said. Right. Yeah, Um, you're fine. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, you, you and Richard have both talked about kind of that lengthy process of, you know, this took, this covered seven years of his life. And I'm sure it took more years than that to edit and get everything. You know, Richard talked about you um, kind of obsessing over it. Was there, was there any moment where you just thought that this wasn't going to work and was, Mm -hmm. you know, what was, what was one thing that kind of pushed you to, kind of to that finish line. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that, that's an important question. Thank you for asking it. Yeah, there is. Um, I, uh, important question for me, sorry. Yeah, the, there was a time where I stopped, um, like Richard said, when I was in Los Angeles. Um, I was here and I, 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 you know, I booked a commercial and had a bunch of money and, and uh, I spent all that money sitting in my apartment trying to edit it and, and put this thing together and, and I, and I just couldn't do it. It just wasn't, wasn't time. Um, and it was a hard pill to swallow at the time because all I was talking about is how I'm going to finish this documentary 
everyone in LA is going to see it and praise me and bow down to Roy. Right. So <laughs> it was, uh, and then when I wasn't able to do it, it was a tough pill to swallow. And uh, I ran out of money and went and got a job at a computer shop and started fixing computers. And then I started to go through my own healing and recovery and looking at my own life and was working two jobs at a mail center and, and uh, packing, you know, putting mail in mailboxes and working at a computer shop. And, and then I started to rebuild my career again and, and, uh, and slowly started to get things together. And then uh, Bud Smith came into my life and, uh, and he uh, saw me working at a computer shop and I had a, a, a short film I did at the time and, I would just talk to him about editing and he knew that I knew what was up because I've been editing since I was 18. I've always been a, a very studio junkie in that regard. And he, uh, and, and he just popped his head in one day and said, Hey Roy, how's your short film going? And I said, uh, cause I, I wasn't giving up on my dream. I was still working at the computer shop doing my stuff on the, on the side. And he, and, and I said, Oh, I just got an assembly edit done. And he goes, Oh, okay, great. And he goes, well, you know, if you're ready to show it, I'd like to see it. And I said, really? He goes, yeah. And I, and then he, he said, give me a call. Cause I had his number. Mm -hmm. So then I, I left work that day. I just told my boss, I gotta <laughs> go. So I raced home and like got all my hard drives together, got the project all ready to go. And it took me a few days and I called and, and, and I was working, I worked a gig on the weekend and I acted like a fool on set. I was trying to, I was, I was asked the PA and, my ego got the better of me and I, and I embarrassed myself in front of, in front of some people on set and, and, um, and I was feeling really down. And then, uh, that Sunday I called Bud and said, Hey, is that offer still on the table? And, um, and he said, yeah, come, uh, come down to the studio. And I said, when he goes right now. And I said, Oh, okay. And he said, so can you be here now? And I said, yeah, it's a Sunday afternoon. So I run out of the house with my hard drives and my laptop and I race down to the studio and, and uh, we sat down and we, we, we looked at my short film and I just absorbed all of his notes for two days. Um, and, uh, and then the, the day we went out for, for, for lunch, the second day, we were talking and he said to me, Roy, um, what's your plan here, right? Like, what are you doing in LA and why are you working at a computer shop <laughs> you know, and making short films? Like, what's your deal? And I said, well, I'll work at a computer shop the rest of my life if, it, if that's what it takes for me to tell the stories I need to tell and he said and he, he lit a key across the table and he said uh I want to help you with your career and uh any way I can so uh I said all right so he literally opened the door for me and uh and then uh he just said you come by the studio whatever you want and so I did I went there every day and uh yeah uh yeah so i went there every day and and listened to everything he had to say and just built my uh rebuilt my life and rebuilt my career back up from there and then uh it's a big move going from uh from vancouver to la right there's a lot of people out here it's a big fish or it's a big pond with a lot of fish in it so i took full advantage of that and uh, I still do to this day. And uh, I finished that short film. I started building up my company and directing commercials, which I, you know, I built up from, from scratch. And I do the whole productions of the commercials. I direct them and stuff. And 
And I, and you know, one day I was sitting there and Bud's son Scott came into my office. They gave me a little room, the corner room, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I had the corner room that I had to make into my own office. And uh, he poked his head in one day and he said, Hey, Roy, he goes, because uh, Where's Buried, the short film I was working on was done and it was out there. And I was working on a bunch of other commercials that they were helping me with. And he goes, Hey, Roy, uh, what do you got next? And I said, Well, funny you ask, Scott. And he goes, <laughs> I got I, I got this documentary that I that I've been working on and I and I seemed to can't finish the edit and he goes oh yeah and I said yeah and so he goes can I see it and I said yeah so I brought it in the other in, into another edit bay and I set it up for him and 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 uh, he always taught me not to say anything he goes you just when someone asks to see your work you hit play and you shut up mm-hmm. and then. So I said, one in there, and I said, sit down. He sat down, and I hit play, and I walked out. And then he come back in 40 minutes later, because I had about 40 minutes edited. And he comes back in, and he goes, I like it. And guess what? I like Richard. <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah. He goes, he goes, yeah, let's do this. And I said, yeah. And he goes, yeah. He goes, you know, I got some time right now. So he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do you a solid. And he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to show you what, what this can be. And then let's see where it goes. And I said, okay. So he spent like a good month and he took all my footage and he started, and, and this wasn't, I wasn't finished shooting yet, but I had a lot, a lot shot and he cut together three 10 minute segments to, to and, and, and he showed them to me and it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen, I think. And, uh, and just the, the technique of editing and just the ability to tell story and, and leave me thinking for myself, I was completely blown away with what he did with my 40 minutes and made it 30 minutes, but made it into two, three 10 minute segments. And people would come in. Every time I had someone come into the studio, he would call them into his office and he'd play one of the clips. And he would just watch, and he just wanted me to watch their reaction mm-hmm. of what people thought of Richard. And, and he, but with no context, sometimes it would just be like a, one of the clips is a 10 minute clip of people, Richard just shredding people, right? Mm-hmm. Being full on addiction. And, and he would do that just so I could understand that they quit trying to, manipulate the film let people have their opinion and uh and so it really inspired me to get back at it so then i you know i I got back into it and then it happened to be that richard had his last show at the end of the documentary sober but never clean and he had this last show that he was doing in vancouver and i just thought man this is a once in a lifetime chance to go get wrap this thing up and get get what this movie needs and i knew that it needed that so i finished directing that commercial jumped on a plane that night took all my gear uh, uh, with me. Me and Graham met back up again in Vancouver and we just followed Richard that whole weekend um, to get that last show of him performing Sober Never Clean because Sober Never Never Clean is Richard's story of exactly what I filmed. Mm-hmm. So it was absolutely crucial. And then that's how I got that ending where I took him to the underground. And we got that honesty out of Richard of when him you know, telling us like when I was in this underground, all I wanted to do was just die and let it be someone else's problem. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was all That's my story is very, my filmmaking, my career is very much tied into this movie. Mm -hmm. It's a part of this. Right. So when I look back and talk about the documentary, it brings up all these things of what I went through to finish the film. And yeah, that's, that's, those are two very defining moments in my life. Um, The one with, bud and helping me with my career and giving me a platform to create and a place to create and his son scott with 
instilling in me not to give up on this film that it's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I really appreciate for going there and telling me all that stuff. Um, you know, and you talked about that end and that end was one thing, you know, for me, we had just gone on this journey with Richard for so long. Um, we've seen him at his lowest of low and just to see this moment and to give not only a very funny, uh, skit, but a very heartfelt one as well. Um, you know, that brought tears to my eyes, but I want to know, and I just have a few more questions, you know, what was, what was it like seeing that for you two? Um, like, was there like a cathartic experience you had finally getting to see that ending, uh, kind of play out and follow that journey, uh, that you guys have been through for seven years? It's always a cathartic moment with me and Richard, I think, when we talk. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I don't know, Richard, I'll let you answer that. Because it's more with you, like, I've already, I've had my cathartic Mm -hmm. moments throughout the making of it, and I kind of knew we had it in the can when I I caught him in that moment, and I brought him to the underground, back into his underground parking. Like, I knew I caught him at that point. So I already, you know, I already knew I had it in the can, and that when my editor knew it as well, and he put it at the end of the film, like I was like, yeah, that's correct, and it and it felt good. But you know, I'll let Richard answer that because it's probably a little bit more accurate coming from him. Hey, Richard. he's on mute. There you go. Oh, there Hello. You go. Yeah. My uh, daughter's cooking, and so there might be a little bit of background noise. That's fine. Uh, that was uh, that was great, Roy. You're on top of it. You know, the first we've been doing a few of these now, and the first couple, he was just like, um, uh, I don't, <laughs> so he's he's found his form. I, of course, have been able to talk. I think I don't know which reviewer said that if you spend any time with Richard Lett, there's going to be a conversation. Um, so um, fair enough. I uh, I love I love that story about about uh, uh, Bud and and uh, you know how they took him in and um, and just the you know the the insight I don't you know the story where um, you're walking out the door Roy and he goes oh oh by the way uh, your film doesn't start right yeah um, that you know that very first moment Jacob that you brought up where I do that. Uh, I won't pay that slam poem on the mm-hmm. street. Um, that um, that wasn't there at that point, and and um, I'm not sure if it was Bud or Scott. Bud, Bud, Bud said to him, "Oh, by the way, yeah, uh, that's not the your beginning's wrong. You got to put that that poem on the street with him. He doesn't have a beer. You can't tell." what's going on and you can't, you can't judge him. You just see him. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it's, it's that kind of insight that, uh, you know, that we have um, when we uh, are working with people that are really, really good at what they do. Um, You know, I've um, had some opportunities to guide some young comedians and it's amazing how you can go, yeah, that doesn't go there, that goes there, this line doesn't, you know, and you just say it and they go and they fix it and they go, oh my God, 
that's how it works. So, um, but I think um, there's a lot of things that are involved with, um, you know, like the success of something. So when we talk about that one man show and that final uh, uh, poem, Swipe Right, that I that the film ends with, um, you know, that poem came as a result of me becoming a slam poet and working in other ways of expressing myself. And the show itself was born out of a, a weariness from just doing stand-up and wanting to take it to a, another place. I, I didn't know that the reviews would see that as a quantum step of my writing and comedy ability and that they could see how much better he was from the beginning. I was just doing my thing. Um, I do remember, uh, you know, Roy was busy that weekend and I think he had a commercial to shoot on the Tuesday and my show had been running and it only had one more performance. And, um, and he just finally had to pull the trigger and say, I'm, I'm, I'm coming. And he rented all the equipment in Los Angeles and flew with it <laughs> to Vancouver because he didn't have time once he got to Vancouver to go shopping for equipment. So, you know, he and his crew and just all these black, you know, boxes of, of, of high-end uh, equipment. And, uh, but he also had an agenda. I, you know, it's interesting because when he was coming back, of course, he was coming to, to film that um, the fruition of my own creative endeavor. But he also had a um, sort of an ace in his pocket as far as one thing that he knew he needed. And that was that final um, time going back to the carport where all my furniture had been piled, you know, years before and asking me what was going on there. And, um, and, and it was such a... Um, surprise to me and it's something that I didn't have time to prepare for that he managed to get actual honesty out of me and because I didn't know what I was going to say I didn't know what the question was I didn't know why we were going there right he goes, oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. oh by the way we, I just want to stop over this other place before we go and do this right <laughs> so he was, he was being a bit of a you know film maker at that point because um, it's you know Jacob, you know, as, as an interviewer, as a, um, a studier of film, to get an honest moment out of someone um, is very rare. We have so many masks. We have such a, a, a desire to make it look right or to say the right thing. Mm-hmm. But he caught me unawares, and that's when I said something that shook me to the car, which is that I didn't care because I thought I was going to die. I wanted to die. And that is a very uh, hard truth to, to see about yourself, that it had gotten so far down the road that I just lost my interest in life itself. And, and, and Roy got that out of me. Yeah. And in a, in a certain way, Bud and Scott got that out of me. In a certain way, Graham and the whole team got that out of me, that came and said, pulled over my head and my heart and said, what went on? What happened? You know, and that's what happened. 
is mm-hmm. that I'm, I, I, was, I was in despair. And despair will take you to a dark, dark place. And then I walked through the door and into the light, out of that carport, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and here I am now talking to you as a result of that. And so, um, you know, it's just a, a remarkable thing. But he knew what he was doing. He'd gotten, he got a little bit of the Bud Smith uh, go, going on, <laughs> right? Because like, Bud didn't tell him to do that. He had already learned mm-hmm. what, he, what he was looking for. And that was to me to finally stop bullshitting. And, and I did. And now I'm back to bullshitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's one thing, you know, I've gone back to it. Uh, and I keep praising Roy, deservedly so. But that's one thing that, for me, I gravitated more towards this film because it felt it felt like a real film. It didn't feel like a documentary with agenda or anything like that. You know, there was a clear, you know, it's like you said before and after that kind of white light and, you know, to finish, to start with the slam poetry, to finish with the slam poetry. I just think that was just beautiful filmmaking in general. And then to get that scene out of Richard, I mean, very few filmmakers can actually get that scene where they're completely open and honest and just baffled. And I just thought it was all beautiful. Um, one thing, a few things before I go, um, you know, everyone's been in quarantine. What's kind of one thing that you guys have been watching, um, whether it be streaming, you know, movies, reading, playing, you know, games. One thing that you guys have been doing since uh, all this quarantine has been going on. I've been playing lots of Uno, and just recently I've been re-watching Jersey Shore. <laughs> okay. My roommate, my roommate started never- watching it. Yeah, I've never seen it. Sorry, my girlfriend's <laughs> rewatching it. Me and Chelsea live together here, and she she watched it. That she got me watching it for the first time. Oh my god! Like, oh man, that's amazing because it, it reminds me of the of like, you know, this is what would happen if the like would Richard have made it if the people from Jersey Shore were making his documentary? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> so, so it's. It's oh man, it's it's entertaining. That's that's the human condition on display right there. Mm-hmm. The human condition on display in the early two thousands. It's amazing to watch, but yeah, I'm playing lots of Uno. I, uh, what is Uno? Ab- <laughs> absolutely kills me at Uno. Um, I don't know, it's like so, a, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a kids game. Yeah, and, uh, so, it's, it's, poker for kids. Not even. It's just like uh, it's literally a basic card game. You get seven. You get seven cards, and you have to play the ones that you're given. So it's like you, if you if someone's playing green, you have to play green cards until you have no green cards left. And if you don't have green cards, you got to pick up a card. And if it's green, you play it. And if it's not, you pick it up until you have a green card or the color changes. Mm-hmm. So I'm not doing the best job at it, but. Yeah. Maybe you, maybe you and Brianna can play. <laughs> I've never tried to explain Uno, so you're doing better than I could have ever done. <laughs> you don't seem interested at all, Richard. <laughs> Interesting. It's almost like that scene in the documentary where Richard's like, yeah, I didn't teach my daughter any of that conspiracy Ricky Dicky do stuff. We used to say House of the Rising Sun. <laughs> Just stuff like that. <laughs> What, what, what I call that the conspiracy of stupidity or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what have you been doing, Richard? What, what, what have you been up to? Well, looks like Brianna made herself dinner and I'm done. Um, um, well, I got a girlfriend 
and um, and we were quarantined together, and um, and she's bipolar, so um, combine that with PMS, and you've got a whole drama unto itself. Um, <laughs> however, um, meanwhile, um, I ended up getting COVID. Um, really, so I yeah, I got it. Um, I'm pretty sure I had it a few, actually, about a month and a half ago. Right. But in Canada, has it guaranteed? <laughs> yeah, in, in Canada, you they will help you um, with it, so that's mm -hmm. nice. Um, but um, but so what happened was that um, I got a, a into a fringe show, you know, fringe festivals, these theater festivals mm -hmm. and stuff in September. But it was kind of wonky because of the, the pandemic, and they weren't sure they were going to do it and all this kind of stuff. And the show that I was going to do was uh, called, uh, based on my experience with cancer, testicular cancer. So I had a, a one-man show called One Nut Only. <laughs> very, cle very clever. Um, but then I ended up getting COVID, and, and I survived, obviously. But then I went through that, that journey, and the idea of doing a fringe show about cancer, which I survived 10 years ago, seemed a bit been there, done that, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, great, congratulations. Because, you know, I had this, you know, fresh life-threatening disease. So, uh -huh. um, Dino Archie, a comedian friend of mine, I ran into him the other day, and he's, he didn't even know I had, had to put together a show. He said, you should do a show called Hard to Kill. <laughs> and so so that's what i'm working on now is sort of a, a composite of addiction and cancer and covid and bipolar girlfriend and stand-up comedy yeah. all these things that would normally kill someone unless yeah. you're richard Lett. so uh <laughs> so i've i've you know i've been creative in that way and 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 who knows plus there are three films i ironically the i did a film called the corona movie and that just came out today it's at the rhode island international film festival okay. so that's what i was okay. doing before this um there's a, a local indie film called all joking aside where i play the um owner of a comedy club and that is a it's a sweet film and it is uh, going to be streaming on Super Channel in a couple of months. I went out to San Diego to the um, Cine, Cineworks, Cine something film festival out there. That was when it was actually a film festival where, you know, you had like you went there. And mm -hmm. then right in the middle of it, they said, this is over, and, but we got screened. So I have three movies out right now. Okay. Um, this documentary and then all joking aside and, and this where I play uh, a racist Vietnam vet caught in an elevator with a bunch of people that are terrified about the coronavirus. Anyway, so between all the publicity that's gone on with Never Be Done and then the burgeoning publicity of these other films, it's kept me, you know, fairly busy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, but, uh, and, and I really like that uh, um, 
that Australian series about the autistic people, uh, romantic, what's it called? Um, um, something about, um, what do you call it when you're on the, anyway, it's, yeah. it's about autistic people trying to find love. Um, so that was kind of sweet. And mobster documentaries. I've seen, um, you know, big, <laughs> I've seen Big Polly get murdered about 20 times <laughs> in different docks, you know? <laughs> yeah. When John Gotti took him out, mm -hmm. that's, you know, the last episode of all these docks. And I just can't, can't get enough of seeing that big greasy mobster with his head in the gutter. Anyway. I did some filming during the COVID. We just shot a commercial the last two days. It's interesting that being on set right now in LA, um, running a production and directing a production with the COVID thing, you have to have a COVID officer on set who's always going, hey, six feet apart. You know, like <laughs> in between each take, you immediately have to have masks on. Um, you know what I mean? It's just like everyone has their own individual lunches again. You know, it's uh, if you pick oh, up something, you have to have it. It's so bizarre. The houses are everything's gone up in price. You have to have it all clean. So, yeah, we just got off a two-day shoot. It was intense. Oh yeah, I went to see my doctor, my GP, and uh, after I'd been cleared um, by the local BC Environmental Health, and he said to me, you know, he said, I was thinking like you're the safest guy in town. Right, because I've already had it and been cleared of it, right? And yeah. this idea that I might be immune for a while. Um, and this all would have been convincing if he hadn't looked like Neil Armstrong about to do a lunar landing when he was saying it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I go to his office, I tap on the window, I look in, I see him in his, his Hawaiian shirt and shorts, and then yeah. he comes out to see me, and it's like, one small step for man, one. <laughs> Anyway, so I might be I I might be immune, but nobody wants to see me yeah. in a mask. You know? Yeah. No. Uh, say, Jacob? Uh, no, that's what I was just gonna say. I think uh, I think Richard needs to write a manuscript for us. That that can be his calling card for his career and how not to die. Um, yeah. You know, uh, he's escaped it three times now. Um, I know. Oh, but. I know. Uh, a friend, of, a friend of mine posted on my because uh, I wrote a little diary of it. He said, "Dodging bullets is for pussies." Richard, <laughs> Richard likes to take it straight in the gut. <laughs> uh, I love that. Um, but uh, you know, one final question. You know, what's one kind of elevator pitch that you guys would give to get people to watch uh, "Never Be Done" a Richard Glenlet story? Elevator pitch. I've never been much for elevator pitches. My whole thing is, I just look at it as like, I make films, look it up if you like it. Yep. You, like it. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I guess in regard to the film, it's, I would look at it as though it's, uh, it really is uh, just capturing a moment of a man at the worst, worst parts of his life and then watching him uh, redeem himself and bounce back from it. Well, as I've said, you know, I think our brain deliberately obscures and blurs the most traumatic parts of our life. But lucky for me, Roy Ty was there to film every motherfucking second. <laughs> 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 yeah, 
Yeah. No, I, I really hope that if people are look are listening to your uh, podcast right now and they want to go check it out, I would just say like, you know, um, it is a it is a it is a once in a lifetime uh, moment to capture in in doc in in, in, in making a documentary, and, and that's what I was able to capture was a once in a lifetime moment in this man's life, and and then following it through with seeing him on the other side of that, and it takes a seven year process for, for the audience to go on that ride. So, you know, if I was to talk to anyone, when I tell them that genuinely, they generally, they, uh, they kind of like, Oh really? Yeah. I have to check it out. So, you know, go to the website, neverbedone.com. The trailer's there. Uh, there's some press links. There's places where you can rent it or buy it. And uh, yeah, just, just Google never be done. And maybe you'll see some other interviews uh, with me or Richard or, or, or the reviews and, you know, maybe that entices you to want to uh, go on this journey and watch this uh, documentary. Yeah. Um, can, oh, sorry. What are you going to say? You can track down my latest CD called Living Clean and Talking Dirty, um, which is on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes and the variety. All right. Living Clean, Talking Dirty. I'm going to have to look yeah. that up right after this. Um, yeah, yeah, you can find... Uh, the movie neverbedone.com. Uh, you can find my review, musiccitydrivein.com. Uh, thank you to you guys for taking your time to talk with me, to open up with me. Uh, you know, let me get my thoughts and get your thoughts out there about this movie. Uh, I truly yeah, did love you. the movie. It's, you know, it's still, it's my number three, you know, favorite of the year. I mean, I think it's an absolutely fantastic movie. I think uh, people need to see it. And um, I just appreciate you guys giving me the time to talk about it. Yeah, thank you, Jacob, man. This is awesome. I, I appreciate you taking the time to help promote this story and get it out there. Um, and, I, and thank you for the review. And, and it, it warms my heart to hear that you uh, that you like it and you put it in your top three. Uh, it means that you got it. And, and thank you so much. So awesome mm -hmm. job, man. Thank you for having us on your on your podcast. Thank you.